Chapter 9 of The Three Friends, A Story of Rugby in the Forties by Arthur Gray Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Byplay The difference between Brutus Sick and Brutus Well is, or may be, of small importance to the world at large, but to Brutus it is everything, and to a schoolboy it is a time never to be forgotten. He remembers that popgun made by him out of an old watch spring and a stick of elder, with which he shot pins at a cardboard target with a penny stamp for a center. He remembers the almanac he constructed, calculating to a day and hour, the time of the approaching holidays. And he remembers, most of all, the big wasp coming into his room one day in sleepy September, which he fed on sugar and taught to be his friend and the tortoiseshell butterfly, grown serious after its summer revels, which would come and sit upon his finger, and open and shut its wings, for all the world like a Japanese toy. But dearer than all memories are those of the sick-room friends, who came to comfort him as he lay upon his sofa, who would look down his throat to see if he had scarlatina, which would prevent him playing in the great house match, or feeling his swelling jaws to judge if it was incipient mumps and then their sympathy, feelingly expressed in the frank phrase, how awfully ill you look, and in the friendly offer to chuck that beastly medicine bottle into an unused garden, and their quite natural way of tasting his grapes to see if they were really ripe. It was so hard to be quite sure in such matters, and their embarrassment for fear of the matron as to what to do with the skins. And then the sudden raids of that matron, for the thirteenth time in one day, to drive away the intruders, and the visit of the master's wife, bright and kindly as a vision of home, bring in a ripe peach or a late lingering flower. All these stick in the memory with the indelible ink of early recollection, when far greater events of active life in school or on the playground are forgotten, so that if it be good to retain memories of the past, amid this dark leaf stream of oblivion which swallows up so much that was once great and good, it is well sometimes to be sick and learn things which at other times you do not learn, and above all to be drawn closer to your friends. So it was with Fleming. He got to know old friends in a new way, and his friendship with Gordon entered on a new phase. He found him under the double influence of sympathy and more assured relations, far less moody and reserved than he had been before. Gordon now let himself go more freely in conversation, and while he was as much interested as ever in his friend's life, he also showed more of his own inner self and feelings. Thus one evening, as they were walking by the riverside, he told Fleming the whole story of his elder brother's death by drowning, while saving the life of another. He had just brought the fellow to the bank, in the large and deep pool in our river at home. Both of them were fearfully exhausted and then, as with a last effort, he pushed his friend to the shore. He himself fell back into the deep stream. It was carried away. I just saw his face, pale as death, as he went under. And there was I, with two heaps of clothes, and Francis half-dead upon the heath, and my brother gone. It killed my mother. And Francis, asked Fleming, did he live? Yes, but it was almost as bad for him as for George. He accused himself so bitterly of his death. 
poor old alan said fleming gently no wonder you are sometimes silent what a brute i've been to you i never thought of this ah phlegm i wish you had known my brother he was twice the fellow i am as bright and cheery as i am often glum and surly and then they got talking about their future both agreed they would like to be soldiers it was in their blood gordon above all had been nursed on stories of waterloo and the peninsula till the gallant feats of highland regiments were as familiar to him as his own family history but he could not leave his father and Fleming was fearful as to his health. "'But I can go into the militia,' said Gordon, "'and make them all volunteer for regulars, if there's a war.' "'And I—' Fleming stopped and sighed. "'How would you like to be a master here?' Gordon asked. "'Not clever enough,' said Fleming. "'I could never do that first-class work at Oxford.' "'Oh, couldn't you? You could do anything if you tried, "'and you'd be up to all the fellows' tricks.' and they do twice as much for you as for some of the men here did you hear of matt arnold the other day asked fleming when they brought in news that it was a half holiday thank heaven he said aloud and the form cheered him he's not the stuff to make a master of said gordon grimly fancy him teaching little chaps tupto and the verbs and moo how could he there's not a bit of the domini about him he's much too great a swell Oh, he'd do it fast enough if he had to do it, said Fleming. Everyone does. Old Pat there'll work a horse some day, when he's in the army. Gordon shook his head. He'd never be a Fulton, he said. You always feel as if Fulton would do for you just all that ever he could. No, said Fleming, of course there's no one like Fulton as a master. But Arnold, if he got something he liked, might make you feel, well, something that Fulton couldn't and he's A-1 at fives. What a clergyman Fulton would make, said Gordon, in East London. Next being a soldier, if I were free to do it, I'd be a clergyman. It's the nearest thing to leading a forlorn hope, out and out. Why, that's just what he said to me the other day, or something like it, said Fleming. I wonder if you'd feel it so, when you got to work. A forlorn hope every day would be rather trying. Well, I suppose my forlorn hope is to try and make the tenants and gillies drink less whiskey they're splendid fellows but by jove how they drink well alan you'll do it if anyone can i couldn't i could never be serious enough they were jolly fellows but you can and will so they walked and talked by the riverside with that unconscious self-revelation which is so prophetic in the young while they watched the slow water hens leading out their dusky broods by the reed beds or the big chub lazily sucking down half-drowned flies in the sluggish stream. They were glad for once not to have O'Brien with them. Had he been there, he would have drawn a comic picture of Fleming as a master, whistling to Scraggs to go out rat-hunting in their old haunts, and of Gordon as Laird going out stalking with a bearded gilly in a storm of sleet, and celebrating the death of the stag over cold tea seriousness with o'brien near was impossible you might as well expect a sleeping draught from an electric eel some days after this they went up one memorable afternoon to the young tutors to eat strawberries and found him with matthew arnold on the lawn engaged in animated discussion arnold was lolling back in an easy chair with a smile upon his face seemingly watching the light clouds creeping along the summer sky as he indolently stroked the head of a great staghound sleeping at his side, 
while Fulton, erect and keen as usual, seemed intent upon his argument. I tell you, Matt, he said, as the friends approached, you'll never get little boys to do anything without marks. It's the only way to rouse them, keep them up to their work. Ah, my friend Fleming, said Arnold, turning to the new arrivals, you are just in time to mediate between me and Mr. Fulton. The mister was uttered somewhat unwillingly. He says that these little creatures, whom I have the honor of teaching, by a whim of our good Tate, must be treated like young pigs, poked at and prodded everlastingly, till they are taught to squeak intelligibly. What do you say, as one who knows something of these barbarians? This was said playfully. Do you believe in the prodding system? In giving them marks, said the tutor quietly, marks for their place and special marks for good answers, to stimulate and encourage them. I think, said Fleming modestly, that the best fellows would get on without marks. Precisely, said Arnold, you would put the clever fellows comfortably at the top of the form, and feed them with nectar and ambrosia, while stupidity sat staring at the bottom. That, he added presently, would be my way. Indeed, it is the only way to teach the world. Give wings to the few. The many will pick up a gay feather or two, which the few have molted. Ah, Matt, said the tutor, it is just the many we have to do most for. Nectar and ambrosia for the fifth and sixth. Something, anything, to awaken appetite for knowledge in the lower school. Appetite, my dear Fulton, I assure you their appetite is enormous. They gather round me after lesson to know what marks I give them. It's the only thing they care for, with an eagerness, a ferocity, which is quite appalling. If ever I don't return to breakfast, you'll know what has become of me. But enough. These strawberries are delicious. Observe, by the by, you take the smallest ones. I understand. Quite professional. Are they the sweetest? No, but someone, was it you, Arnold, had already taken the biggest. Pray don't say anything. I understand. Quite instinctive. You always love distinction. The boy smiled. There was a pile mostly of very large strawberries on the poet's plate, but he was not disconcerted. I'm afraid, he said, you have me there. They were the top of the pottle, as they say at Covent Garden, and that friendly shake of yours showered them all upon me. However, I do like big things, certainly, and this strawberry, he lifted it up and looked at it admiringly, is an imperial one, quite the grand style. Ripe, too, all over. I wonder how much of me would ever come to ripeness if I was a schoolmaster. It is a beauty. Let me present it to you. And he put it upon Fleming's plate. I could never eat it. At this moment a man was seen approaching, strongly built with a grave thoughtful look, and expressive eyes that lighted up a somewhat somber countenance. Clough shouted the tutor. In the name of the prophet, Clough, said Arnold, fresh from Oxford damps and metaphysics to breathe real youth and freshness at rugby. Well, they have not killed me yet, dear, as you said they would, not even their whole school days and first lessons. Dear creatures, they are very kind to me, on the whole, though they made me an April fool one day. But a plague on pedagogy when you are here. What is that under your arm? A new book of poems, Matt, said Clough, simply, just out. It marks an era. Yours, said Arnold inquiringly, yours, beloved? No, something far higher, something from the highest heaven. It is one of the immortals. And he handed him, as he sat down, a little brown volume from which Arnold read eagerly. 
in memoriam a h h no author who is a h h they say it is arthur hallam replied the other and the author shines out in every line it must be tennyson read number fifty six and then turning to the tutor and the two boys after a few words about oxford he fell easily into rugby talk he was not a great talker himself but he loved to hear others talk and was a sympathetic listener the boys especially interested him and as their awe of the great man faded they chattered away freely delighted to find that he knew the country even better than themselves he never could understand why dr arnold pooh-poohed rugby scenery with the avon agonippe barby hill and the old canal not to speak of naseby and combe abbey near what could you wish for more meanwhile arnold was heard murmuring to himself beautiful luminous a new metre a masterpiece it must be alfred then at last turning to clough and handing him the book he said with faltering voice all the light playfulness in which he cloaked real earnestness departed read my voice is wasted with much teaching and pointed with his finger there and clough read in a soft low voice like far-off music peace come away the song of woe is after all an earthly song peace come away we do him wrong to sing so wildly let us go yet in these ears till hearing dies one set slow bell will seem to toll the passing of the sweetest soul that ever looked with human eyes i hear it now and o'er and o'er eternal greetings to the dead and ave 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 said adieu adieu forevermore another said arnold laying back and playing with the great staghound's ears another and again clough read not as picking out favorites but letting eyes and fingers choose for him one after another of those immortal poems which took the heart of england by storm and have been the delight and strength of the english-speaking race ever since and as often as he stopped arnold would say almost in a whisper another till at last closing the book clough said it must be tennyson who else could it be and his greatest work did you know hallam matt then arnold murmured something about immortal and recovering himself with a sigh replied hallam oh yes i saw him once he was unlike other men but it needed friendship to understand it ah clough when we had that villa in the caucasus we used to talk of the caucasus said the young tutor starting up bless me why here we are forgetting third lesson come along arnold groaned and they all laughed then as they were breaking up miss fulton came across the grass carrying a big notebook here are your marks she said to her brother i've just finished them i thought tutor would come out first exactly said arnold this is just what i would do tutor is the first boy in the form i should say and tutor would appear first and some other boys ought to be at the bottom about a dozen of them he added thoughtfully and they would come out bottom and so justice would be done and none of the bother but i assure you mr arnold i added them up very carefully i went over them twice i am sure you did miss fulton and fancy and figures happily coincided how delightful but i must go amid the general decay of virtue at the present moment let us not forget punctuality and third lesson 
Good afternoon. The boys went off. Vowenclough and Arnold were both splendid fellows, and in memoriam was the finest poem in the world, quite the top of the pottle, as Fleming suggested, and the school bookseller had much to do to supply the demand for it. Not that boys are sentimental. It takes a manly brush so to color friendship as not to overdo it. But in the picture of Arthur Hallam, there was no false sentiment or unreality. In its descriptions of scenery, of Christmas games, of college life, and of the common hopes and joys of men, were all English to the backbone. And again, who could resist ring out wild bells, or her eyes are homes of silent prayer, or somewhere meek unconscious dove? Even the schoolboy was overpowered and forgot his cricket for an hour. It was something to live and to be young at such a time. Moreover, Coningsby had appeared lately, and the picture of a band of friends carrying out in afterlife the dreams of progress first conceived at Eton gave new importance to school friendships. They seemed the beginning of a joint work for the national good, in which school heroes would take the lead. It was delightful. It was grand. It was stunning. There was doubtless some exaggeration and nonsense in such a creed, but Disraeli knew how to appeal to the imagination, and his novel treatment of a great subject was attractive to the mind of youth, and caught on. I desire, said a boy of great promise who died early, to say now positively that nothing in Coningsby about school friendships is extravagant or unreal. It was found after death in his diary and had he lived longer he would have seen yet another noble garland of friendship woven by the hands of Matthew Arnold for his friend Clough. College friendships have a great and striking history. They have drawn from Milton and Tennyson, not to mention Shakespeare's immortal sonnets, some of their finest work, even surpassing that inspired by love. For love is a shy passion and seeks the shade. Its best is rarely told save in allegory or in disguise. But to find school friendships also glorified was a new thing. Of school and afterlife we remember most the madcap pranks, the wild adventures, the reckless jollity. We think of the sly jokes, the booby traps, the fights with chestnuts, with bolsters, with snowballs, with anything. And no thought of the bumps and bruises, the bloody shins and broken noses that followed these mock thermopolis detracts one iota from the pleasure of recalling them. Boys delight to read them over their study fires, and grown-up, even old men, greet the record of them at school dinners with loudest laughter and giddiest applause. The fun and frolic of life were then everything. The sadder afterglow of thought and seriousness had scarce begun. But in Coningsby there was struck a higher note. With no loss of fun or naturalness, a band of friends at Eton, happy Eton, that can have such a foreground for its boyish dreams, was portrayed as already looking forward to great destinies, with new principles giving fresh life to old-world parties, and with wider sympathies embracing larger notions of a country's good. Even now, when so much of this has been realized in our national life, it is difficult to read without emotion the concluding words of Coningsby, when the friends are just started on their upward course. They stand now on the threshold of public life. They are in the leash, but in a moment they will be slipped. What will be their fate? 
for they maintain in august assemblies and high places the great truths which in study and in solitude they have embraced or will their courage exhaust itself their enthusiasm evaporate their generous impulses yield to the tawdry temptations of a low ambition will vanity confound their fortunes or jealousy wither their sympathies or will they remain brave loyal and true refuse to bow before shadows and worship phrases sensible alike of the grandeur of their position and the greatness of their duties and so restore the happiness of their country by believing in their own energies and daring to be great from such high ideals it may seem a considerable fall to come down to our three friends theirs were far simpler lives contented with less lofty visions but in speaking of a great school as it was in the forties i wish to show how at that time even ordinary boys were stirred and moved by that spirit of life then awakened in england all did not feel it in the same way but the blue of heaven reflected in the lake is also mirrored in the cistern and boys who have once had ideals kindled in them when young never wholly forget them afterwards many love in life and love in vain but tis better to have loved and lost than to care only for yourself and instead of the poet's ardor and the prophet's dream to follow only the cold guidance of a prosaic and commonplace routine you may lose that higher light even in the noblest calling and make nothing of your paltry life but you may retain it and bless god for having it even amid the colossal temptations of a millionaire End of chapter 9